to celebrate uh, starting a new series today. We finished a series in Mark that took us 15 months, so I don't want to just skip past that, by the way. We met in a different location when we started that series. We, some of us are different people today, like literally different people, and so uh, we are excited about uh, what God might want to do in this new series, but I don't want to miss. Some of you, God changed your life through that last one too, and so way to go sticking with us or however it is that you allowed God to work in your life as we were going through that series, and so we're excited about that as well. But today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, and so we're going to start there. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at just two verses today, verses 31 and 32, and talk about the mystery of marriage. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into Ephesians chapter 5 together. Father, we come before you. You are a good father. We sang that song, but we mean it. And we sang a lot about your love for us and the gifts that you give us, but just because of who you are, we love you. You are holy, and that is so different than us. And we are, we talk about marriage and think about compatibility and matches sometimes. We are not compatible with you, but you wanted a relationship with us, and you made that happen because of your love. And we are thankful that your son, Jesus Christ, has risen, and that we are able to receive life and new life, and we celebrate that new life today. And God, there are marriages that need new life in them, and I pray you'd bring new life. There are marriages, there are two people that can to be Christians, but they're not Christian marriages, and I pray that you would change that, and you'd begin today. And there are people here that are thinking, how does this even apply to me? I'm not married, or I don't ever want to be married, and God, I pray you'd speak to their hearts today, too. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I love a good mystery. Today we're talking about the mystery of marriage, and I think about my own life. I've liked mystery, I think, my entire life. I remember when I was in fifth grade one time, they were teaching us how to read books, and not just to know how to read, but like how to read a book, like look at the table of contents. If you want to get a summary of what's in the book and read the back, it'll oftentimes tell you the gist of the plot, the story, and it'll give you even maybe some characters. And I remember in fifth grade being sent down to the library, and we're supposed to pick out a book on our own without our teacher giving us any guidance or anything like that, and then we were going to come back, read the book, do a report on the book. And I got this book. I was pumped about it. It was a mystery book. And I had read what was on the back of the book and read the table of contents. I didn't, under, I didn't know the author. I'd never heard of the author, but read some of that stuff. And I come back to the classroom, and I remember the teachers asked us what books we picked. And so she got to me, and she's a very nice lady. She said, Scott, which book did you pick? And I remember the class laughed at me when I told them the book. I didn't know that the, she told me afterwards that that's primarily a book that girls would pick. I said, I got a Nancy Drew mystery novel. I didn't know. Now, I'll tell you right now, I still to this day have never read a Nancy Drew mystery novel because my class did the same thing you're doing to me right now. Bring them back, open in the wounds, right? That's what happened. But I love a mystery. It doesn't matter if it's a book. It doesn't matter if it's a movie. It doesn't matter if it's just like something you see in life that's out there. And you just want, there's got to be more to it than what I'm actually seeing in this moment. And so I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Sixth Sense. That guy's dead like the whole time? Or my, one of my favorite movies that I've ever seen, a, a guy told me, and oftentimes before I go watch a movie, I'll, I'll look up online and see what some of the reviews are and see what the content is and see kind of the storyline. And a friend of mine knew that, and he said, don't do that with this movie. Just trust me. Go watch the movie. A Beautiful Mind. I don't know if you've seen that. But I, remember, I didn't know the whole time. I won't ruin it for any of you who haven't seen the movie, but I didn't know. And there are different mysteries that are out there. In life, there's things you ever just watch something, you think, why does it work that way? How does this happen? There's got to be more to it than just what I'm seeing here. And for many of us, that's the way that marriage is. In fact, marriage is actually designed to be a mystery. But it becomes incredibly confusing when you think about all the places we get our ideas for marriage from. And so many people, when you think about marriage, and Disney's kind of fed the idea of what marriage is supposed to be. It's this fairy tale between a prince and a princess, and her breath never stinks, and he's a great dancer. 
and they're both well-read. He's charming, but he never says anything, <laughs> apparently. It's kind of how the movies actually seem to be. And so we get this idea that we have to find Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect, and we neglect the idea that we're not. <laughs> and so we're going to bring our mess to that situation, and it won't be perfect. Or we get these ideas that are really skeptical about marriage. Some people have this thought that, that marriage is just, just passion, it's love, it's a feeling, and emotion all the time. And so have you ever heard this statement from people? I don't need a piece of paper to tell me that I love you. And that's that it comes from that idea. I don't need commitment. It's all emotion. It's all this feeling. And so if it's all this feeling, then the paper's going to mess it up. And so you've got these skeptical views. You've got these overly romanticized views. And to be candid, all of us here, regardless of what your views are, you might be a sold-out follower of Jesus. You might be the most minimalistic person that anybody's ever met. You're super simple. And everything in your life, you've been influenced by consumerism. And so we all have these ideas about what marriage is supposed to do in our lives. And so other things don't do it, and we think, well, marriage is going to fill some need in my life. It's going to make me happy. I had one person, I asked people last week that were here for Easter, if you have any questions about marriage, fill them out, send them in. I did some stuff on Facebook, people sending questions. One person sent in a question, and it makes my heart pretty heavy, actually, for this person. I know it's anonymous, so I don't know who they are, but she asked the question, am I responsible for my spouse's happiness? Oh, what a weight to bear. And some of us, we put it on the institution of marriage. Marriage should make me happy. Marriage should fill some void in my life. Spiritual void, sexual void, emotional void, whatever the void is. I'm supposed to get, it's because of our consumeristic mentality, we think we're supposed to get something out of this. And then you go and you start to think, how does that work itself out? Well, look at our culture if you wonder if we're confused about marriage. You can do a quick Google search. And I looked at different stories this week of unique marriages becoming more and more popular for people to marry themselves. Go look at there. Are, I could tell one story, but there are lots of stories out there. People, men and women, I'm ready. I'm a good person. I'm going to commit. There's just not another good person for me to commit to, so I'm going to commit to myself. People with cardboard cutouts to get married, like all kinds of stuff. People that have married their pets, people that have married animals. So one woman married a dolphin. She gave him a herring as a wedding gift. One woman married a snake, and not the guy you're thinking of. An actual snake she was married to. And there's a debate about can two people of the same gender get married? You wonder if there's confusion about marriage in our culture. And so today what we're going to do to try and clarify some of the mystery, we're going to talk about the mystery of marriage, but we're going to go back. Some people think that marriage is a new invention. It was done for business reasons. It was done for civil reasons, for insurance reasons, for relational reasons between families, for reputations. But we're going to go back and we're going to see before any of that stuff, the one who instituted marriage is actually God. That's why marriage matters. And we're going to talk about matters of marriage in this series, and the first one's going to be this mystery. And my hope for you is, I know there's people in all kinds of different stages today. Some people are single, and you want to be single. Some people have the gift of singleness. The Bible talks about that. Some people are single, and it's just because they're skeptical about marriage. Some people are single, and they really want to be married. Some people are married, and they don't want to be married. Some people are married, they love marriage, you just want to go deeper in your marriage. And some people, it's like, I want a refresher on some of the premarital counseling I got. And some of you are like, premarital counseling, what's that? Well, some of you are single because you're a widow, some of you have been divorced, some of you have been abandoned. I understand there's a lot of different people here today. My hope for you all is exactly the same today, is that you'll have a bigger vision for marriage than when we started. That God will grow, he'll give you a grander vision of what he actually intends for it to be, and that single people will leave going, oh, I, didn't know, I didn't realize that was what it was supposed to be like. That's what I'm supposed to be going, I don't know if I want that, or maybe I really do. And then married people will leave and they'll ask themselves, is that what we have? I didn't even know that was the goal. Or maybe it is, and is it really happening? And there's an evaluation that will take place. 
So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. And we're just going to look at two verses today that I think are foundational for this whole series. And so today we're laying the foundation for everything else we're going to say in this series. And what's happening in the book of Ephesians as a whole, it really has a pretty simple structure. Ephesians is six chapters long, the book as a whole. The first three chapters, there's not one single commandment. It's all about things that are true, about some of the things that we sang about today. All things that are true about God and about our relationship with God because of what God has done. It says that we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We're all, spiritually speaking, we're like zombies. We're walking around, we're living lives, but there's an emptiness inside. We're dead, spiritually speaking. But because of what God did, not because of anything we do, because of what God did, it is by grace through faith, not your works, that we're rescued out of that sin. That he gives us life, that we're made alive in Christ because of what we talked about on Easter, that Jesus Christ died, he took the wrath of God on himself on the cross, he died for your sins, but he didn't stay dead, he was risen. He is risen? You are paying attention, this is good. And chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians are all about that, that what happened was he loved us so much that he came after us and adopted us into his family. When we're adopted, then we get the rights to be called sons and daughters of God, that we get the right to be called his children, sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We get this new identity, and it should change the way we relate with one another on a relational level too, on a horizontal level, not just the vertical level with God. Because of what happened with God, all the, there should be no racism. Jews and Gentiles together, black and white, whatever kind of mix you want to talk about, yellow and red, whatever there is, It's all been taken care of because of our reconciliation with God. We should be able to be reconciled with one another. And then what happens in chapter 3 is it ends at the very end with that amazing prayer that talks about the love of Christ that's that's beyond what we can understand but we can experience, that surpasses knowledge, that you'd know the depths and the heights and the length and the width. And it ends with that, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine according to his powers at work in us because when we are made alive in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. What that means is this, any commandment that God gives you, he actually enables you to fulfill. So it's really not about you. It's where you surrender your life to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's the one who actually gives you the power to obey the commands as the time comes for you to obey those commands. According to his power, it's at work within us, and he gets the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. Then chapter four starts, now the commandments start to hit. Hey, all that stuff's true in the first three chapters. Now, what does it mean about how you live? When we get to chapter 5, what's just happened is that Paul's just been talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit and how that will change the way that we talk, the way that we relate, everything that we do. And then he gets real practical. He starts talking about marriage. Verse 22. Talks about how wives are supposed to live in marriage. And verse 25 starts talking about how husbands are supposed to live in marriage. And we're going to come back and talk about some of that stuff next week and the different roles and how this stuff actually plays itself out. But today we're going to jump into verses 31 and 32 because I believe it's foundational for everything else. In verse 31, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, and he says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or be united or joined. It depends on what translation you have. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. It's great. It's a huge mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so here we come to this passage of Scripture that says what I believe is some of the most foundational stuff that could be said about marriage in this day. And you think about that. There's a lot said in the Bible about marriage. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Genesis chapter 2, Revelation chapter 19, if you want to look that up on your own. And then all throughout it, you see all this marriage stuff. Talk about confusing. In fact, some people go to the Bible and argue for polygamy because you see it in the Bible. Let me tell you something about the Bible. Everything you see here is not an example for you to follow. It's a real book 
that has real life situations and real life is messy. And so you see sin. And so we see some messed up marriages in the Bible. And that creates some confusion. But throughout the Bible, what you see is it begins and it ends with a wedding. You see Jesus Christ himself call himself the bridegroom. God refers to his, his own relationship with Israel like a marriage relationship as he's the faithful groom and then they are the unfaithful spouse and he keeps being faithful. And you see Paul talk about, you see Jesus talk about marriage. You see marriage is all throughout the Bible. So why did I pick these two verses to start this series? Well, there's two reasons. One, because verse 31 takes us back to the very beginning. It's a quotation. It's the first wedding, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And then verse 32 then tells us something that hasn't been said until this point in the Bible. With all the stuff that's said about marriages, with all the marriages that are witnessed, good ones, bad ones, principles that are true, passionate love, the way that people are abused, all kinds of stuff that happens all throughout the Bible. This hasn't been said until verse 32. And so it takes us back, but it also gives us a vision moving forward is why we're looking at this passage as the foundational passage. Because what Paul does when he, he's just said all this amazing stuff to wives and husbands and how this is supposed to work, what the relationship is supposed to look like in light of you being filled with the Holy Spirit, what just came before that. And then he gets to verse 31 and he quotes Genesis 2.24. And what we see is that anything really that gets said biblically about marriage has the underlying ideas of Genesis 2.24, which was God's design from the very beginning. And so what he says is all the stuff I've been telling you about marriage, wives and husbands, oh, underlying all of that is Genesis 2.24. And so he takes us back in verse 31, and what he takes us back to is what our first point's gonna be is this, that marriage is God's design. That marriage is God's design. We try to redefine it and twist it and modernize it and bring it up to speed and make it fit our lives and fit in our consumeristic culture and all the ideals that we have and do all these different types of things with it, but we've got to go back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, he took the bone from the man. So, and man said, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is, wow, this is amazing. You made a woman. And he says, that's right. I've given you, I've given you a companion, a helper. A mate. That was God's design from the beginning. Now here's the reality. When we start using it different than it was designed, it gets dangerous. It gets messy. I was reading this week about just in our culture. We live in such a you know, lawsuit happy, litigious society that people are always suing each other that almost every product that is owned, in fact you probably pull it yourself on the probably warning on it somewhere, that has these warnings on it about how not to misuse the product. You're supposed to follow the manufacturer's instructions. And so I started looking. I was like, I bet we do this all kinds of stuff. And I just started, I was like, I go down this trail. You ever get caught on like YouTube and you just watch a video and then you watch another video? You start going down this trail of manufacturer's warranties that you can look at online. I saw one for a washing machine. It says, no human is supposed to be inside the washing machine. And I thought, there's a story. Like, do you ever read policy manuals and think, what was the story with this one? Like, where'd you get this policy? I saw that and I thought, who was the first guy? And yes, I believe it was a guy. Who was the first guy that decided to get inside this machine that was designed for your clothes and he had to be like the laziest guy ever, right? Like, why am I taking a shower and washing my clothes? I could just hop in this baby. Then they had to write the manufacturer's warrant. I wrote down a few other ones. Push mower, I saw. There are push mowers that actually say on them, not to be used as a hedge trimmer. To be candid, when I saw that, I thought, that's not a bad idea. Why am I walking all the way back over to the garage? You know, why am I doing that? Chainsaw, chainsaw said, do not hold the wrong end. <laughs> That's needed, apparently. Have you noticed that most Christmas lights say on them for indoor and outdoor use only? Think about that one for a second. That one takes a second. 
Because I wondered, is there like a third realm where Christmas lights are being used? I have not thought of. There was a, a packet of peanuts in American Airlines that actually has these instructions on it. Open packet, eat nuts. That's needed, apparently. Were they getting a lot of questions, like the flight attendant? What am I supposed to do with this thing? First you take a chainsaw, sir. You open it up. You take it to your washing machine. You put it inside. Lottery tickets say do not iron on them. That was confusing, but then I started to read a little bit more, and it's because of the kind of paper, that it, or the printer, I think, that it's used to, to print it, that if you iron it, the whole thing turns black. So then I thought to myself, who was the guy that discovered this issue? Did he win, and he wanted to make it, well, my ticket's too wrinkled up. Oh, no! Like, it cost him, what happened there? And, and you can just go on and on and on. There are all kinds of different products out there that are being misused. Is it any wonder that we would try to use marriage a way other than the way that it's designed? And we do. In fact, and you can judge somebody else and think about, the, oh, clearly, the people that are marrying themselves or the animals or whatever, but we all do it. And so we got to go back. And so I want to read to you, not just from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, he's quoting there, but Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. There are only two people on earth, as the context, by the way. There was no matchmaker.com or eHarmony. Those aren't bad. I'm just telling you, they didn't need an algorithm to figure out if they were compatible. So have you ever heard the line, um, I wouldn't date you if you were the only other person? Right here. It's happened right here. There's two people. And good thing neither one of them said it. Genesis 2.24. Two people. God's just made the woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. This is God speaking. Speaking to Adam and Eve, they don't have moms. He's not just speaking to them. He's setting a precedent for all time. This is, merit. this is how the manufacturer designed it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united, hold fast to, joined to his wife, and they, they shall become one flesh. And there's a lot here. The first thing we see here is there's no room for the way that it even gets redefined in the Bible, polygamy. This is between one man and one. A man will leave his father and mother, cut the strings, Oftentimes, a lot of the problems that happen in our marriages, again, cut the apron strings for mom. God, God is your provider, not your dad anymore. You're leading the home, guys. Cut the strings, and you go and you be with your wife. One woman, not polygamy. There's no room for polygamy in God's definition of marriage. There's no room for same-gender marriage. Now, you can call it what you want to call it. People can marry themselves, that's, but it's not, God, it's not marriage. You can have a, you have a relationship with yourself. You have a relationship with your pet. You have a relationship, you can have a relationship with lots of different people and lots of different reasons for insurance reasons, all that stuff. God didn't do this for business purposes. This is the first relationship before parenthood. This is the closest relationship, more than bearing children, more than the people that you share the same DNA with. Look at the last part. They become one flesh. Now, maybe you've read that before, or you've heard that in marriage, you've been to marriage ceremonies, and you hear this verse quoted, but let that sink in for a second, because there's more here than just polygamy is not allowed, and, and in this sermon series, we're not going to be railing against homosexuality or, or same-sex, you know, people that are trying to have marriage, and it's not being about laws, but we're going to talk about what the Bible says. And so we've got to go back to the foundations here, and the Bible says between one man and one woman, but there's a lot more than just the, who it's between. It says here that they're joined. It's talking about its permanence. Cemented together, glued together would be the idea of the word. They hold fast, the ESV says. United, the NIV, to his wife. And they shall, two shall become one flesh. 
doesn't get any more intimate than that. So there's permanency, there's intimacy. Let's start talking about intimacy. Intimacy, this is the most intimate statement that you can imagine. The two become one. What's being talked about here, obviously, is the consummation of the marriage, so it's sexual, but it's more than just sexual. And we're going to do a whole, whole message on sexual. We're going to talk about celebrating intimacy, but really, that's what, that's what sex is. It's a celebration of all the intimacy you already have in your relationship. And so when they come together and they consummate this marriage, they're, they're coming together saying, these two people, God's joining them together. God's doing something here that's spiritual, that's beyond just the physical act of sex with one another. There's an intimate thing that's taking place, and these two souls are being joined to one another, they're being glued together, being cemented with one another. The two are becoming one. Think about that. So what does that mean for, well, we've got to negotiate how we do things and compromise? Like, there's an incredible intimacy here that's happening. And the question for those of you who are married should be, how do I get that intimacy? Well, let me tell you this. This intimacy that's being talked about here, that goes beyond just a sexual relationship, if you want to have more intimacy in your marriage, you have more intimacy with your relationship with God. So you go into what Ephesians is talking about and the context here, that it's about being filled with the Spirit and then how that gets fleshed out and all the truths of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. Do you want to have more intimacy in your marriage? You need to work on your intimacy with your relationship with your Heavenly Father. And what happens is that you grow in your intimacy vertically that ends up impacting horizontally what happens not just, this isn't just, by the way, marriage information. This is for all relationships. If you want to relate better with other people, relate better with Jesus. You want to relate better in any other relationship in your life, work on your relationship with Jesus, your intimacy with Jesus. And what will happen is you'll learn to relate better with Jesus, but then also you'll become more like Jesus, which will then impact all your other relationships. So then the real question is, how do I, how do I relate better with God? Well, it's like any relationship. It requires time. You need to set aside time to be with God. You need to set aside time for prayer, talking to Him. You need to listen to Him. The primary way He speaks to us is through His Word. You need time where you're meditating on the Scriptures. You talk to Him the same way you talk to a friend. You talk about it, if you got in a close relationship, you talk about an issue, and it's not, oh, we talked about that once. No, you talk about it, and you talk about it again, and you talk about it again, and over and over until it's really dealt with. You talk to him. Be with him. Just be in his presence sometimes. The people that you're closest with, you can get together with. You don't have to do something. You can just be together. When you want to get closer with God, just be with him sometimes. Just sit in his presence silently. Think about his characteristics. Think about him. Think about what he may want to do in your life. Let him guide you, direct you, speak to your heart in those still moments. So you want to relate better with other people, you got to relate better with God. But then also, then relate with his people. One of the best things you can do for your marriage is get in a small group at Southbridge. And I'm not talking about a marriage small group. And I don't even care what the percentage is of people that are married in the small group. But just getting with other believers. Now, we're going to start, actually, a marriage small group at the end of this series, and we're going to have marriage mentors, and those of you who are interested in that, totally can sign up for all that. I'm not saying that's bad, but what I'm saying is just get with other believers. I had one young lady, I told you I was taking questions for this series, and she wrote me a question. I'll read you the question, but I want, to, I want to share with you the context, and she told me it was okay to do so. Her question was this. What do you do when you are married? You both profess to be Christ followers, but your marriage isn't godly. So two Christians, but it's not a godly marriage. What do you do? But in the context, she answered some of her question when she was writing me the email. And she talked about how she started coming to Southbridge. They were both Christians already when they started coming. 
But they just kind of came for a little bit. And then after they had just attended church for a little while, they decided they were going to start serving. They decided they were going to get in a small group. And then they started to see authentic Christianity. They started to see other marriages. And these are my words, not her words, but they basically started to feel like this. I want what they have because there's something happening there that's not happening here. And what they ended up starting to learn is, oh, it starts with an authentic relationship with Jesus. It's not just working on each other, him becoming a better husband, me becoming a better wife. No, it has to do with us being in God's word, us being in prayer, us being transformed in the likeness of Jesus. And then do you know how we grow in intimacy? It's called life. We live life together. And we live life together with these other believers. We live life together with each other. And then there's fun that we have together. And we celebrate stuff together. And then there's difficulties that happen. And there's sacrifice. And there's suffering. And there's loss. And we lose loved ones. And we lose jobs. And things don't go the way that we want. And there's pressure. And there's stress. And the kids don't do what we want them to do. And then things cost more than we thought they were going to cost. And the insurance goes away. And all, as all that's happening, we're relating with God. We're praying, we're praying together. Which, by the way, time out on that. Here's something I oftentimes tell couples, and some of you, I've done some of your premarital counseling. I'll tell couples, if you're about to get married, stop praying together. Be like, well, you're like a pastor. It's against your job to do that. What are you saying that for? Because it's such an intimate thing. I say, hey, if you keep praying together, the next thing you know, you're going to be making out, and it's going to start going further than you want to. Stop. Time out on the praying. Stop all that praying stuff. Because here's why. Praying is so intimate. You're burying your soul before your creator. You want to get to know someone's heart? Pray with them. And so married couples, start praying. You want one assignment from today? Pray together more. Pick a time. Every morning, every night, whatever it is, pray together. Just start praying. It doesn't have to be structured. It doesn't have to be based on some passage. If you wanted to, totally fine. But just pray. Pray what's on your heart to God with each other. And live life together. And see what he has to say about your life in his word together. Then you'll grow in Intimacy. It's two become one. You're bound together at the soul. The two, God does this thing where two people become one flesh. And it's not just a physical thing. And we'll see that when we talk about permanence. Because the next thing he says here is you'll be permanent. The two becomes one, but you're joined. It says in the ESV, it's not my favorite translation for this particular verse, hold fast to. And it's because this idea that you've got to hang on to. That's not it. The idea is that you're cemented together, that you're joined. I like the NIV on this one a little bit better, that you're united with one another. And so here's what it means. If it gets taken apart, that's not how the manufacturer designed it. It's dangerous. It will cause pain. And I'll say that realizing this. There are some of you who have been divorced, and it wasn't even in your control. I'm not blaming you. Even if you were the offending party in the divorce, God can still work in your life. Don't hear me saying there's not grace, but I am saying this. That's not how God designed it. God's design for marriage is that the only thing that ends it is death. That's why we say when we're saying our wedding vows, tell death do us part. We're pledging that we want to do it the way that God designed it to be done. Realize that divorce happens. In fact, Jesus makes it really clear when you get to the New Testament. He quotes this verse, and then he goes a little bit, he makes it a little bit further in application. And what he says next in Mark chapter 10, we did this when we were going through the book of Mark, and what's really interesting is the context for where Jesus is at. Jesus is in a spot where a guy had, cut, had somebody's head cut off. It had to do with the way that the guy spoke about his marriage. The guy's name was John the Baptist. And these people that are coming and ask Jesus a question that set up the statement that he's about to make, they're not wondering about divorce. They ask the question, is it lawful to be divorced? They've already settled. All the religious teachers already believe it's lawful to be divorced. And the way that Jesus responds makes it clear. I don't care what Herod thinks, and I don't care what you religious people say at church. I'm going back to the beginning. Let's go to what the Bible says. 
And so then Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 and verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, here's why Moses allowed that. Because of the hardness of your hearts, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And then he says, verse 9, this isn't the next verse. This is not Genesis 2.25 he's quoting. Then Jesus says this, What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. It's meant to be permanent. So you're not using it the way the manufacturer designed. He designed it. He laid it out. He had a patent on it. And when you do it that way, it's dangerous. It will cause difficulty, it will cause pain, not only in the lives of the people involved, but there's a ripple effect, there's shrapnel that comes in, there's collateral damage. But the reason why divorce was even allowed was actually out of God's grace for the protection of, usually in the case of the Old Testament, it was the woman. And so she was allowed to be given a certificate of divorce so that she could marry again, because her state in that culture would have been so helpless and so God is being gracious. He's allowing provision. Most Christians believe the allowable reasons for divorce are if you have one spouse that's repeatedly and unrepentant of adultery. Or, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're married to someone who's not a believer and that non-believer wants to leave. It doesn't mean if you're married to someone who's not a believer, I should get a divorce because God didn't want that. Nope. You're, the Bible actually speaks to that too. But if they want to leave, you can allow them to leave. And then there's a bunch of variations. There's things the Bible doesn't talk. It doesn't talk about abuse. It doesn't talk about some of those things. It's not saying you need to stay in an abusive situation, though. But it's not saying that necessarily the answer is divorce. And you see the way that God responded to his people all throughout Scripture. Unfaithful, continually unfaithful. It doesn't say you have to get a divorce because of those things. But it allows for those things. God's plan, though, from the beginning, permanent. Bound together. And so some people you'll see, if you just do quick Google searches or talk to some of your friends, as long as I'm in love, I'm stay with it. But I mean, I'm, I'm willing to get out. That's not, no, no, no. You're already, you're starting without God's plan. This isn't going to end well. We already know that. But God's plan, intimate and permanent. But why? Why even have marriage? Well, anybody who tells you there's one reason is oversimplifying marriage. There are multiple reasons throughout the Bible for marriage. They're not business agreements, though, any of them. One reason is in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 18, what you end up seeing is that marriage wasn't good for man to be alone. So there's a companionship that's happening with marriage. You see in Genesis chapter 1, there's a commandment to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. Procreation is a purpose, a reason for marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, to fulfill your sexual, God-given sexual desires, marriage is the design for that. But the highest reason we see in verse 32 of this passage, and it's where it talks about the mystery and so God's plan for marriage, God designed it. He's got a plan for it of permanency. He's got a plan for it of intimacy. But then there's this mystery. And what's happening in, in verse 32 is that we're seeing that marriage is God's plan to reveal the mystery of the relationship, not between a man and a woman, between Christ and the church. It's actually supposed to reveal something that it's not even a picture. It's, that's why it's mysterious. It's like you look at it, and I'm looking at a reflection. I'm not really looking at the real thing because it's pointing me to something else. It's pointing me to Christ in the church. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Up till this point, this hasn't been said in the Bible. Genesis 2.24, it's quoted all the time. Genesis 2.24, quoted by Jesus, we just saw, in Mark chapter 10. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, but then he, he adds this piece. This is a mystery. And it's not a mystery because it's so confusing. It's a mystery because it hasn't been revealed up until this point, and at this point in the Bible, 
God reveals it. And he says it's a profound mystery. The word profound, megas, it's a big mystery. It's a huge mystery. It's not, not, not just a huge mystery in the sense that it's confusing. It's a huge mystery in the sense of how important it is. This is a significantly important thing that's been held, withheld, hasn't been revealed. Now we're going to reveal it. We're revealing that marriage is actually not about marriage. And so you see marriage all throughout the Bible, but the Bible's not about marriage. What's the Bible about? It's revealing God to us. It's revealing God's desire for a covenant relationship with us. It's revealing God's pursuit of people that are unfaithful, sinful people that he wants to redeem to himself. We saw the highlight, the climax of the Bible last week. We talked about Jesus Christ rising from the dead. So what is marriage supposed to do? Marriage is supposed to show us that love. So husband and wife are supposed to love each other in a way as the two become one, one man and one woman in this intimate relationship that is permanent, that then illustrates God's desire, His love for people that He's pursuing. That's the point of marriage. It's, it's kind of like, I don't know, it was like three weeks ago, I was uh, leaving the service and I, I left out the back and my, my goal was during the last song is that I was going to try and get to the cafeteria before y'all got out so I could talk to some different folks before they left. And as I was coming around this back hallway, I bumped into this little, little boy. His name's Corbin. He's one of the newest people at our church. And uh, Corbin was recently adopted. Uh, his parents, Keith and Britton Williamson, some of you may know them. They've oftentimes usher during the second service. Keith has been in charge of the parking lot. So even if you don't know their names, you probably know Keith and Britton. And uh, for years, they've been trying to adopt. And then those of you who've adopted, you know how fast things can go right at the end. And they, they end up getting notified about an opportunity to adopt this little boy in China. And I watched their journey on Facebook the first time they met him and different experiences they had. And even before they went, finding out that he had some developmental delays and that he was barely crawling, even though his, his age would dictate that he should have been doing that already. And then people in our church started praying, and within four months, he started walking. And so they found out their, their son was walking by, a, I think it was an email <laughs> from information from folks. And so you can imagine what that's like. And they got this little boy. And and I remember the most impactful part for me was talking to Keith the week after they got back, and he said that his adopting his son made his relationship with God so much more vivid. Because he said after he adopted his son, he had to stand before a Chinese government official and say, I will never leave him or forsake him. I'm going to treat him like my own. We're going to give him our name. We're going to provide for him. We'll never disown him. <laughs> That's what your father says about you, by the way. That's the kind of love he has for you. And so he had to declare that kind of love for this boy that he just met. And they bring him in Corbin. They bring him to his family. And so I bump into Corbin out in the lobby or out in the hallway back here, and he's running everywhere. Like, my understanding was, like, a couple steps. This dude is, like, going all over the place. And so I looked at his mom, and I said, hey, I thought he was just, like, barely walking. And she said, well, he discovered his shadow, so he's chasing his shadow everywhere. So he's just running around chasing his shadow. Where'd that guy go? You know, he's just chasing his shadow all over the place. And then I started thinking about what is a shadow? A shadow, it is a real thing, but it's not the real thing. It points to something else. It points to the person who the shadow belongs to. And so here we have marriage is really like a shadow. And I want to say to us as we start this series, don't chase the shadow. Marriage is not about marriage. It's actually, it points to the one who created the marriage, and it points to his love. In fact, if you go back in Ephesians earlier, what we'll talk about next week in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says this, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave him, how did he love the church? He gave himself up for her. And then it says down here, I'm talking about this profound mystery, what's it about? It's about this relationship between Christ and the church. So your marriage isn't, not only is it not about you, it's not even about marriage. And so, to the woman who asked me the question, if you're, you're out here today, 
Am I responsible for my spouse to be happy? No, no, you're not. In fact, you can't make him happy. You can have some fun circumstances together, and I'm not saying there can't be things that you enjoy with each other, but marriage can't make him happy. The institution itself can't make not, not much less an element of it, the wife. No, it wasn't designed to. And so if you try to make it that, you're not using it the way the manufacturer intended. You will be disappointed, and you'll probably be hurt. Well, what's supposed to happen? It's supposed to be this incredible intimacy where you see this love. What is this love like? Well, you go back and you look at Christ. What did we just talk about in the book of Mark? You see the kind of love that Jesus has. He leaves heaven and comes here for us. He's in pursuit of us. Are you pursuing one another? He's in pursuit of us. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He came to seek and save that which was lost, us. And while we were sinners, while we were, actually while we're sinning against him, we're wronging him, he's coming after us in love. That's what marriage, marriage is supposed to demonstrate that. He says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, love your wives like Christ loved the church. He gave himself for the church. And we saw that. We look at the Passion Week that we just spent time going through. That he comes and he comes into town and he's coming for the very people that are going to kill him. Father forgives him. They don't know what they're doing. As he's being beaten, gruesomely murdered on the cross, that is love. No one's taken his life. He's laying it down. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's victorious because he's risen. You're kind of paying attention. <laughs> That's love. Love is what we see demonstrated on the cross. And by the way, that was because of commitment. That wasn't just because he felt like doing it. Oh, it was the joy set before him, the joy of knowing what was coming. But it wasn't enjoyable in that moment when he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's not doing it because it's a great match. And so you think about the things that happen in marriages today. So how does this, how does this work out? How does this flesh itself out? I, I read one person, I can't remember the author's name now, but they said that the canvas of the gospel is suffering and difficulty. So you want to put the gospel on display? Well, it happens when you realize you didn't marry the perfect person. <laughs> now what are you going to do? It happens single people when you want to be married and you can't find the right person. Now how are you going to respond? Oh, wait, I don't have to be married in order to put God on display? No, no, no. That person doesn't complete you, regardless of what the movies say. You are a full human. In fact, the majority of information we get in the New Testament about marriage comes from single people. Jesus and Paul. And so what happens is you put God on display when there's victories in life. And when there's difficulties in life, when there's a fight, oh, now we got an opportunity for grace. Now we got an opportunity for forgiveness. Now we can see the gospel. When there's a mess, when that person's wronging you, while they're wronging you, you've got an opportunity to be like Jesus. When you're married to someone who's not a believer, or you're married to a believer who doesn't want to have this kind of marriage, now you've got an opportunity to have Philippians chapter 3 kind of fellowship with Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He's dying for the very people that are mocking him. And so rather than feeling like, woe is me in those moments, how is he trying to work on that vertical relationship with you? Because some of you might leave here today and go, I want to have that kind of marriage. And your spouse is like, mm-hmm. And they're not going to fight you on it, but they don't want it. They don't want the work of that. They don't want the difficulty of that. And now you can leave here and go, oh, I'm the spiritual one. I'm... No, maybe God wants to use their resistance as part of his growth in your life. So how is the gospel going to be put on display? Those of you who are married, is the gospel put on display? In your marriage, 
Not just are you getting along with each other. Not just you have a good plan, good budget, a good whatever. And so we can talk about like date nights, sex life. That's okay. That's okay. But really, it's, we're talking about intimacy. We're talking about God's kind of love. And so it's not even really about marriage. That's just one of the places that fleshes itself out. And so you think about Corbin. Think about that little boy chasing his shadow. What's going to happen eventually is he's going to get not, not so fascinated with his shadow. He's going to realize the shadow points to himself. Hopefully one day Corbin's going to realize his own story, that he had parents that pursued him, that came after him. They didn't even really know him. They knew some things about him, but they adopted him. They gave him full rights. You, you get, you're the Williamson now. You, you're, you're my child. Never going to leave you. Never going to forsake you. But then hopefully that will, that's just a shadow too. That will just point him to his heavenly father who did know everything about him and still came after him. That while he was a sinner, he sent his son Jesus to die for him. And we'll point him to a bigger story. And so married couples, I want to ask you this question. Then we want to make sense of this mystery. Then do this. Live out the gospel in your marriage so that we wouldn't have better marriages than our culture, but we'd have totally different kind of marriages. See, the real point of a marriage is to connect people to Jesus Christ for life change. That's the point. That's the mystery. How do you do that? Oh, you got to do it. God's design. And it has a whole lot more to do with your individual relationship with God and it does just in your tactics and principles and practices you're going to use with each other. We'll get practical and we'll talk about some of those things. But it's all rooted in your intimacy with your Heavenly Father. And so as we conclude this morning, I just want us to have a few moments where we just pray. And pray not with each other as married couples or any of that kind of stuff, but you pray to God. Pray to God about your vision for marriage. Pray to God about what you think His plan is for your life. And I'll lead us, and I'm going to give us a moment of where you can just talk to the Lord, and then I'll wrap us up. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I ask, I ask what I was saying that my hope was for this message, that you would make our vision for marriage bigger. And God, I pray if there's someone here, maybe they're married, maybe they're not married, but they don't have a relationship with you, that you would draw them to you right now, that you'd pull them to you, that you'd say, I'm, I'm calling you, I'm coming after you, I'm pursuing you. And let them feel that. Father, I pray for married couples. I pray that you would bind their hearts together and they would experience the oneness that's talked about in Genesis 2.24, the intimacy and the permanency. And I pray that they would have some real talks when they leave today. At some point today, I pray for those that are single and, and want to be single. If you've given them a gift of singleness, I pray they would rejoice in that and be fully confident in that. And if, you, if that's not the case, that you would shape their vision for what marriage is supposed to be and that you set their expectations for what it's going to deliver and that, that wouldn't be some consumeristic mentality of it or over-romanticized idea of it, but that's going to deliver another opportunity to put the gospel on display, something they're still able to do right now. And so I pray that they wouldn't feel like they have to wait. And God, I'd, we just come before you and I ask you to speak to each individual heart and just give you a moment just to talk to the Lord on your own. And Father, we want to relate with you. We want to know you well. And we use marriage and we use this series as part of the process of doing that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.